Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today we're discussing John 5, Tyrion 6, and Eddard 11 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? It goes all right. Beautiful weather. Spring is here. Yeah. I'm loving it. I'm adoring it. Finally getting outside, getting a little sunshine. And I'm going to get my tan on. Winter is coming in this book, but in my life, spring is blooming. You know, the problem is there's always a winter eventually. <laughs> so, like, well, it's not always... the way we're going. <laughs> that's actually a fair point. All right. You know, yeah, winter is leaving. Yeah, that's, winter uh, that's is... a whole other issue. It's like beginning, uh, beginning of April right now. It's 85 degrees here. So, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here but there's a um there's a common take i don't know if george r R. martin himself has said it uh or if this is something that fans have come up with but that the the others the impending doom beyond the wall are climate change and then it's just everybody squabbling over politics and ignoring that until we all die and that's (laughs) actually what these books are about (laughs) it's very prescient Yeah, uh, I mean, he, he wrote these like it was a conversation when he started writing, but uh, he seems to have <laughs> nailed the reaction. He really understood what was going on. <laughs> um, you know, I'll say so. So you were just saying the chapters that we read, and it's you know John five and Tyrion six and Ned fifty four or whatever it happens to be. Precisely, you nailed it. Uh, eleven, I think it's Ned eleven. Um, but it's it's funny. So, th- there was something that I realized wh- while reading these chapters that I that I wanted to bring up kind of before. We Uh-oh. dive into the nigrity. Okay. Nitty um, edit that in post. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, nope. We're leaving uh, in your idiocy. Um, something that I noticed is this, and, it, and it's funny because I've actually, uh, I'm going to bring up another author that I, I know who does this, and, and you're going to laugh because I don't think anybody would ever say these two authors in the same sentence. Okay. But something that I'm noticing about George R. R. Martin is that things seem to happen in waves. Uh, so we had start when we started this book, we used to talk about inciting incidents a lot. Uh, and we'd say, oh, here, this is happening. Or, you know, the, you know, brand got shoved off the tower spoilers, uh, <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, inciting incident, inciting incident, and all of these right. things are these sort of inciting. And then we got to watch some of these things, not necessarily, you know, hit the, the spark, you know, like, like the sort of powder keg off. But we've, like, we've crested the wave a little bit right now. Exactly. But what I found in these three chapters is that it's almost kind of like, like there's a respite happening in the story and there's sort of a resetting of the table happening. So, you know, I didn't find, and we can talk about this as we go through the chapters, but I just wanted to kind of voice it out loud, you know, and vocalize it a little bit first is that I didn't find that much of the story was changing directions throughout these chapters, that some great revelation occurred that's now right. going to go some other direction. But I also didn't find that it was boring. It was really that some of the characters that I'm familiar with in their situations in their station are now sort of acknowledging the change in that situation or station and that they're trying to like kind of guide it. And it almost feels like the chessboard. It's like, like I can, I I was sort of imagining it as like a a chess match uh, except in, in rounds. So you play round one and the board is as it is. And then you set up for round two and you can't reset to the beginning, but you kind of move upon here. Yeah. It's, it's ratcheted up and now it's pulling back slightly, but not quite to the baseline level of, you know, we're in Winterfell and if Winterfell and everything's happy and the family's hanging out, you know, it's, it's quieter, but the tension is still there. And so we're just kind of waiting for the next powder keg 
to go off. I think that's right. You uh, you forgot to say the author. You I know. I was thinking about. I don't know if it actually fits, and I'll say him in a second. But I will say <laughs> that uh, the you know one of the things this does feel almost like a battle. The the book does not the story of the battles happening in the book. Right. But, you know, this sense of like, wow, things have happened and now people are kind of going back and nursing their wounds a little bit and acknowledging what the how the how the battlefield stands and then strategizing towards that. Yeah, I agree. Um, the author I was going to bring up was James Joyce, because James Joyce, it's not that he does it exactly okay. in this sort of waves in, out waves in, uh, but he does do something where he cycles almost. I mean, this is just my take on it. What I've read of his. But well, it's uh, your podcast, Michael. Yeah, he, darn right. Uh <laughs> He cycles, he brings up something, and then about four or five pages later, uh, he'll actually refer back to it, and he'll do this throughout the whole thing. And so you get this sort of interesting thing. It's not a linear, you're not perpetuating through the story in a, you know, every page, every turning of the page is the next scene in the story, as much as every turn of the page is bringing you into something relevant that happened a few pages before, and slowly. So every four pages is really two pages of story told and two pages of kind of reference back. And again, I don't mean this in literal numbers, no, I think but it's that's, just interesting to see that. I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. Like, if you think of the story structure that we were shown as, you know, elementary schoolers of the the leading up to the climax, building up to the climax, and then falling off into mm -hmm. a conclusion, you can kind of see George R. R. Martin working his way up the tension as that would normally work, but also simultaneously spreading out a foundation underneath it that he can slowly keep building multiple aspects of it. And that's really what we have here. There isn't an explosion at any point in these three chapters, but we have each of our three main regions, I guess, leaving out Danny across the sea, but we have the far north we have Tyrion leaving the Vale, and we have Nen King's Landing, and each of the three is slowly laying groundwork for whatever right. the next big conflict is going to be. Uh, and and I agree; I think that's interesting. Uh, it's a good way to look at it. With you know, you said, bring up James Joyce. I was thinking more in terms of as you were talking about it, Arrested Development, <laughs> as they they lay all of the seeds for the in jokes that come over the course of the rest of the series. Uh, but each one is funny in its own right. Yeah. Well, James Joyce, Arrested Development, it's basically the same. I don't yeah, same hear idea. much of a difference. <laughs> uh, with that said, I thought we'd jump into John 5 and and, and start from there and make, make, make our way through these sure. chapters and see what's going on. Yeah, why don't, why don't you tell us where we last saw John and then give us a little overview of what happens in this chapter. Uh, okay, great. So John is, uh, is still up at the Night's Watch. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I think the last chapter was really the introduction to Sam Tarley. Yes. Am I, did I miss one? No. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I guess that's kind of a great place to lead us off here. Last we saw John, John's story has been evolving up at the Night's Watch and up at, you know, the sort of the, the, the wall, basically. Yes. Uh, and what we found is that his, you know, the, the perspective that we get from him and his situation in these storylines is about his evolution at this station. So while there are stories about what's happening beyond the wall and Benjamin Stark, who will be mentioned in a moment, you know, we still don't know what happened to him. He's being presumed dead. Again, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but but John is becoming a leader, is what last chapter is. He really is taking a love to some of the men that he has, getting them to kind of gather around. They decided to protect Sam Tarley, this sort of fat yeah. idiot bastard. Not a bastard. Really at John's... Uh... John Surgeon. And yes, not a bastard, uh, but but disowned by his father under penalty Halfway of death. Halfway there. 
Um, and the men seem to, at least his little basic training platoon, seem to really respect him for it, or or, or following him at least. And he, he yeah, he's got a crew. It doesn't yeah. necessarily seem to be everybody, which comes up during this chapter. Uh, but you know, he has a group that he is really the leader of that they look up to him, kind of the the troop leader. And so we find here uh, there it's we we start this chapter and it's graduation. Uh, basic training yeah. has come to a close, and it's kind of a really sweet moment. Uh, Sir Alistair Thorne is basically saying, everybody get in line. I don't like you. I've done all I can. Get ready to get your assignments. Get out of my face. Right. Uh, and everybody's so happy and they're throwing their caps in the gear and yay, everybody, except uh, <laughs> except for little, little poor Sam Tarley, who obviously is not being graduated, if only just because of when he arrived much later than everybody else. Yeah, it's also worth noting that some of the people who John's been with, we don't get like a clear list, but it's only eight of them that are graduating. Some of the people who have mm. been with John since he got there are also not graduating. So this isn't like, okay, whole class moving out, new class coming in. Sam is just one of a number of people who are are not going to be taking that next step. And that's that's fair. I, for some reason, I thought there was only eight of them to begin with. I was like, ah, oh, dwindling numbers up at the nice watch. There's only eight. Yeah, it's not huge. And we, like I said, we don't have a, a clear list of who graduates. And we'll get into this in more detail in a moment. But uh, but we don't have a clear list of who graduates or who doesn't. But there are some names specifically that John brings up later as possible continued sure. threats to Sam because they will still be in basic training. And they're cheering and enjoying themselves and saying, how great are we for having accomplished this? And uh, John kind of notices Sam and he kind of says, hey, you're, you're okay. And and it's kind of clear that Sam's not okay, uh, yeah. which I think makes sense, even as a reader, right? Like, it's like, wow, right. Like this guy, John really stood up for this guy and he found a real friend here after having like a real awful, awful life, uh, Sam, that is. Yeah. And now with that said, like. Friends moving on. Yeah. He's being left behind a little bit. Um, Which leads to the the end of the chapter there where yeah. John really internalizes that and goes and, and fights for Sam with Maester Eamon. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. They, he, it, you know, what's fun about this little moment though, in the chapter, as I, and I want you to understand, like I hear, I can hear between the lines. Like you want to finish this chapter already. It's a boring chapter. Uh, I don't want to finish the chapter. I want to finish our little overview of the chapter. A little overview of the chapter. <laughs> uh, well, in that case, that is exactly what he does. He kind of like has a conversation. And so he pushes for, for, for Sam to, to kind of get out of his dire situation. Yeah. I, uh, with that said, in the chapter itself, once they're graduated, they basically all go to dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where they, where yeah they so, so let's slow down a bit and talk about who's where. Um, okay. We get this list of names up front. I mean, first of all, Sir Alistair, despite it being graduation, is still being a dick. Like you said, he, he kind of says everybody sucks and you'll never be good enough and you're definitely not ready. Uh, but I've been told it's time to graduate some of you because we've got some new recruits coming. And so you can go through. And he lists off all of his offensive nicknames for the people who are graduating. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. that's why it's not 100% clear who's graduating. But we can tell uh, Gren, Pip, Toad, and Halder are among that list, which is uh, like really the core of what we've learned are John's friends up here alongside Sam. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's notable, you know, Thorne's comments here are something to dwell on a little bit. They will call you men of the night's watch now, but you are bigger fools than the mummer's monkey here. If you believe that you are boys still green and stinking of summer. And when the winter comes, you will die like flies. And this is, this is a theme that we've been talking a lot about of, you know, 
the summer on people. It's been talked about surrounding brand and surrounding some of the kids, this view of the world that is not hard enough for the world that people live in and has been manipulated by the songs and by the stories. And whether Thorne is being nice about it or not, or going about it in the right way, he's really effectively communicating, uh, I think, that point of you don't actually know what's out there, and you may think you're ready, but you're not. And this is kind of the same lesson that Donald Noy was teaching John earlier on. You don't understand what the real world is like, and that means you're not ready to go out and be the hero that you want to be. That's so funny. I took it so the opposite, even though it's so similar to what Donald Noy had like been talking about to John much earlier. But uh, but to me, this is the, you know, war scarred general talking to new recruits being like, you'll never be good enough. And I'm sure he right. believes it. But but I think that's kind of like the 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 company line more often than not for things like this. I know also it, it's funny. It reminded me there, there's like a King Arthur's court series of stories, you know, the King Arthur's stories. Uh-huh. Uh, but one of the things that happens is the first half of all those stories is really um you know they're 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 fighting to gain this land and to hold it and to tie everybody together in the middle of these stories all of a sudden king arthur starts to make comments he's like none of my men want to fight anymore everything's good and calm they're all just jousting and playing nobody's actually experienced hardship you know and i I think that's just part of it like life gets better over time you know when you were when they had to build the wall and there were raiders coming across and everything that's much harder than like oh well, that's interesting i mean we so often see the knight's watch as an institution in decline like you've already mentioned as mm-hmm. uh you know not having enough men there are these concrete threats north of the wall right now from mance raider and from the others if anything this seems like a harder time to be on the wall which kind of gives more strength to Alistair, Alistair Thorne's comments, you know, 30 years ago, it probably looked a lot more like Tyrion's Grumpkins and Snark's comments than it does now, or at least that than we know it does now. And that seems to be reflected in leadership's attitude. You look at the conversation Mormont had with Tyrion, uh, however long ago that was, I mean, that was a while back before mm-hmm. Tyrion even left the North. Um, but yeah, I, I don't disagree with you that this is the company line aspect to things. And it is worth noting that Thorne is operating from a place of bitterness and communicating sure. that quite clearly in a way that will undercut any actual message he may and, have. I don't want to use that. I just think it's funny too. I, like I want to dwell on that. I think that I've just had a very different perspective on that situation than, than it sounds like like you're saying. To me, there's there's been a a sort of diminishing need to support the needs of the wall what was once a necessary institution has become sort of a grandfathered in like we still do this kind of thing yeah uh you know and that that there's there's this sort of this this dynamic this sort of push and pull between those who are night's watch from the old you know the older generation of it saying we are still a value we have valor and there's a need for us versus uh, like who the new recruits are, which are pillagers and rapists and God knows what criminals. Right. And then you so, have the sort of politics around that and people, which I assume is, you know, those in the South basically saying, well, there hasn't been a big conflict on the wall for ages now. What's the point of supporting it? Yeah, that's, that's I, I have two sense. thoughts in response to that. The first one is that Thorne didn't really join up in a different time. He was a political prisoner after mm-hmm. Robert's rebellion. So he wasn't coming up here when it was, you know, something you volunteered for because it would make you look great, that it, it was still a similar sort of period as to what we're in now. Okay. But also, 
there's the difference between they don't have this need and there hasn't been a need. What I'm talking about in terms of the concrete realities on the ground, which is sure they don't have the need and they haven't in a long time, which is why they've gotten fewer resources, fewer men. But if you are a man of the Night's Watch, you now have a larger portion of the wall to patrol because there are fewer sure. men. To okay, do it. yeah, you I now have that. more work to do because of that. So from the perspective that this is like because they have fewer resources, this is a harder time in response to which these new recruits will need to be even stronger. And it's yeah. not clear to me that that's settled in for them yet. And at least that part of what Sir Alistair is saying makes sense to me. Uh, that makes sense to me as well. And with that said, he storms away and says, yeah. be off with ya. Yes. From there, uh, basically those that, like, like we were saying, right? Like those that had received their sort of commission saying congratulations get out of basic cheer and hip hip hooray and uh and john sort of pass around a a flagon of wine and a skin of wine or whatever it may be yeah and uh and john goes to kind of like celebrate a little bit with sam only if it's only his own uh celebration and uh and and clearly finds sam to be well a little shook yeah and that that continues on through the dinner that they go to and have to celebrate too uh which sam skips and we get some more fat jokes commenting on how strange that is uh, but repeatedly, John is noticing that Sam's out of things and, and comments, I think, to Pip that, you know, it makes sense. We've been his protection in basic training, and, and now we're all leaving. Yeah. The uh, other thing that comes up a couple times in these pages is people in their class reference Benjamin as dead. And John mm -hmm. kind of reacts strongly to that. Sam first says, you know, you'll be first ranger like Benjamin was. And John corrects and Benjamin is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it comes up again. So it's just yet another reminder that Benjamin is still floating around out there. It's now been however long it's been. But, you know, clearly the general assumption is that he is no longer with us. I'll add to that. I think that there is. I, I, I worry that I do this too much, but I wonder if there's a. Um... Like part of me thinks that John is a little soft headed when it comes to these things. He's like, no, no, he is alive. Like, and he's, yeah. he comes up a little childish. I do wonder if that's George R. R. Martin just writing him as heartful, you know, soulful. Well, more than that, but like somebody who has more care and an emotional connection to those around him than say Hipwood or you know other other characters that we've seen, even the small yeah. side. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. look, he has not experienced death in his life. He doesn't know his mother and never has, but he certainly didn't experience a loss of her sure. and the people around him. You know, his childhood, this is the stinking of summer aspect of it. So whereas the people who were lowborn, who were criminals and sent here to avoid their punishment, probably have a lot more experience with the harsh realities of life than John does. And that's part of what he's needed to learn. I suppose, but it's like a page later and, and I, I'll take a step back after I say it, right? But John actually goes into thinking about his mother for a little bit. In fact, well, yeah. what, before saying that, I just wanted to touch on one thing, which is just, I thought it was interesting that as they started to talk about what their positions might be. And they really talk about oh, yeah. these two different positions of rangers and builders. Uh, those are the two that I heard. Is there more types of There's a third one that comes up in a few pages, but I wanted to talk about them all at once, which is the stewards. So oh, the three right. orders of the Night's Watch, you have the Rangers, which are the fighters, and that's what, you know, Benjamin was the first Ranger, the head of that. Uh, the builders are obviously 
responsible for building, but repairing the wall in general, repairing the castles and for clearing the wood that creeps up on the wall. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the stewards do effectively everything else. They're the ones that are bringing supplies in, handling the trading, they're running the stores, they're doing the feeding, they're uh, running the castle in effect, kind of like a steward would anywhere else, but there's an entire order of them. So when you graduate, you get sorted into one of those three. Uh, It seems that that will be part of the like graduation ceremony. So Alistair Thorne is announcing you're graduating and then at some point in the future they are going to will be yeah yeah um with that said and i really just want to take a brief moment to just mention those because i thought it was interesting. it's also sorry i just wanted to add say, one say. more point on that which is that the conversation surrounding this happens between john and halder and john expresses like why would anybody not want to be a ranger like those are they get all the glory those are the cool guys why wouldn't you want to be that and halder's like no fuck that i want to be a builder so it's it's cool to see how these different types of jobs have Mm -hmm. different appeal to different people you know we've talked a ton about how this is a martial society in general so i imagine the uh rangers would be the most popular one the one people most want to be in but there are plenty of people who are able to be honest enough with themselves about where their skills and desires lie that the other things have their own sort of honor to them as well yeah and that makes sense i think that it's true for anything like this whether it's military or even jobs in general right people look at the high executives as like the sexy position to be in but it's like plenty of people do fine as a i don't know an accountant um with that said i thought there was a really lovely and this sort of leads into that comment about john what i was alluding to him talking about his mom but but john kind of takes a moment talking about sam we talked about how sam is noticed to not be at dinner and there's some fat jokes made but John really has this moment where he kind of steps outside and is by himself. And he starts to think about like, what is the value of being here on the wall? This is about to really be awful for Sam. And mm-hmm. Sam here becomes like an interesting like perspective on the whole situation. You know, man, how wonderful what John was able to do to get the unit together, to protect this guy, Sam, to really like become a family together. But now they've graduated and things are evolving. And and John realizes, wait a second, this is a this is a rough situation here. This is not easy. And he starts to think about what would it mean to leave? He hasn't taken his oath yet. It wouldn't be abandonment for him to just- right, like he's still allowed. Life. Exactly. Uh, and he really starts to consider it. And, and this is where it comes into his own thoughts about his mother, is he kind of balks at it for a second and uh, and basically says like, like man, like I'm going to go home. I can go home to my family. And then he says, no, to my, to my half, my half family. But what I'm saying is, is that during this during this consideration, as he's kind of looking down the path that would be the washout path, right? Like I'm right. going to leave. I'm going to, and he says I could go back to my family, and then he kind of says like back to my brothers, and then he corrects himself, my half brothers. And I actually wanted to point at this here because he goes on and he says he tries to think about his real mother, and he actually thinks of her with real bitterness. You know, probably just a whore, probably right. you know, probably just scum. And you know, in fact, this is the best position I could be in. there's no love for me anywhere yeah it's it there are a couple of different aspects of this i want to bring out the first one is he makes an interesting point and and some logic to it which is thinking concretely really for the first time that we've seen about what does it say about who she was and who i am that ned wouldn't talk about her even to me uh that tells me something and it tells me she was a whore and adulteress. there was something dark and dishonorable he said or else why was lord eddard too ashamed to speak of her and this has such a contrast from where he was at earlier with donald noy if you remember that whole conversation was sparked when he got into a fight because one of the guys called his mother a whore and 
it was his reaction to that, his kind of, like you were just saying, that soft attitude of, no, she wasn't. I'm going to fight you for saying that. Right. And here we have him thinking more concretely about it. Actually, that probably makes sense. And it's kind of a reflection of the people around him and the environment he's in now of learning how to accept those sides of himself that at Winterfell he saw as a source of shame and something to struggle with. So the second point that I wanted to make here, which ties directly into that, is we're seeing somewhat of a reversion from John back to his thoughts on the Night Watch, Night's Watch at the beginning of the book before he left Winterfell, where this was a place for glory, a place where he could do well in advance, and he was so excited for it. And then we had this long middle period up until now where he's been really disheartened by the environment that the Night's Watch is and the people who are there, these horrible people, these criminals and all of that. And it's good to see him coming out the other side and realizing, nope, I kind of had it right the first way. Maybe I won't go into songs as this incredible, noble hero who saved the world. Maybe that's not what we're doing here, but that there is honor to this. And there's honor to these people around me, regardless of what contexts, what material contexts led them to the decisions that they made that brought them here. You know, And so as he kind of forms those bonds with people who are the son of a whore or uh, a poacher or a robber or something of that nature that led them to be here. As he's forming those bonds and getting to know them better, he's slowly making his way back to that position of, I can do good things here. I can have a good life here. And it's good to see him follow that learning path. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting the way that you're saying that, because I think that, you know, one of the things that you and I talk about all the time, as we look at different characters and their chapters and perspectives and their situations is we kind of have these two different groupings that we seem to talk about things and those that uh, really believe in the stories, right? The Sansas, the brands, even the right. Neds, and those that don't, and that are just a little more like jed, jaded and hardened and 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 hard-hearted towards these situations and more out for themselves, the little fingers, the yeah. Tyrians, even the, you know, and, and whatever it might be. But it's fun to see. John has really shown himself, and I'll add maybe Daenerys to a little extent, but John <laughs> has really shown himself exactly through what you're saying, right? As going through a growth, somebody who started as a Sansa or a brand, this sort of hero chasing, be part of the stories. And I think that this whole situation has really become a wonderful self introspection of that he's going through saying, you know what, this may not be the hero life that I thought that it was, but I can stand up here, I can yeah. be an adult here. And it's interesting to see that maturation happening. Yeah, I, I think one of the really interesting things about John's story here in this first book and his character arc, really, to use the buzzword is is the intersectionality of it, where he, as, as a person, he started as the outsider at Winterfell, which is not a bad place to be. Mm -hmm. And he so internalized that and made that a part of who he was. I have it the hardest out of anyone. And it's coming out into the world and starting to learn the realities of life and the, the much harder things that people have had to deal with in this world than him. And to be able to identify with that, hey, that looks a lot like what I had to deal with, just more extreme. I could have been in that situation as easily as any of them. And we see it a lot with a number of characters who kind of have this outsider status who aren't necessarily slotting into these roles and trying to find themselves in society in general find some reflection of themselves and, and you know Tyrion said it outright early on that there is a kinship between a dwarf and a bastard and a mm -hmm. cripple and here we have John 
learning about the kinship between himself as a bastard and people who have no affiliation with the nobility at all, that these struggle, struggles are all kind of intertwined with each other and operate in similar ways. And the more you can see yourself reflected in somebody else's struggles, the more you're going to be able to work with them and relate to them and find a, a space for yourself. Well, it's funny because it's a great segue because he finds himself, literally the line is, John found himself thinking of Sam Tarley again. Uh, yeah. And and here we are. And I think that it's exactly, you know, to that maturation that he's going through. And and even to what you were saying, as he thinks about his mom, like, oh, probably a whore, as in, in contrast to that defensiveness from earlier. I think that he's starting to understand that it doesn't matter. Like, right. like it, you know what, his situation is a situation. The same as Sam's situation is Sam's situation. And so he says, well, what? let me think about this situation. And he makes a decision and he decides to take a huge, a huge risk, I think, and say, I'm going to go knock on the door of Maester Amon. Yeah. Who I don't know who he is. He's amazing. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. So, so, before? <laughs> like, yeah. So he's been around the leadership generally. Okay. He was in that dinner that Tyrion had with the leadership. We've mm -hmm. seen him a couple of times, but generally as a smaller character, but he's the Maester of Castle Black. So he's, He's high up. He advises Lord Commander Mormont. He's involved in all of those discussions, those leadership discussions. Uh, but really, the only things we know about him is he's very old and he's very blind, uh, both of which are, are somewhat relevant in the discussion that comes here, at least as place setting, that this guy is. And so basically, in the middle of the night, he goes and knocks on the door of this Maester, Maester Eamon, uh, where one of the stewards, like you had brought up before, like yes. opens the door, Chet. Chet. Chet and Clytus are the two that take care of Maester Eamon, and we get a note that they're the two ugliest men in the Night's Watch, which they think is uh, reasonable because Maester Eamon is blind, so he doesn't have to look at them. <laughs> we we happen to get a big description of both of them, and I'll say, yes, they do seem pretty, yeah, they sound horrible. pretty fugly. Um, and, you know, basically the next couple of pages are the last pages of the chapter, and there's a little bit of spat between John and Chet, and it's it's fun. They're going, you know, it's like a fun little argument that they go, and John kind of wins his way through the door. And he finds himself in the audience of Maester Eamon, where he basically turns around and says, hey, this is not, I, I need to tell you about this guy, Sam. He's going to die. He's going to be injured. He's going to be absolutely brutalized. Uh, in this situation. And he actually, go, it goes so far as to say that John shares in great detail exactly what has happened and what he's done for Sam since Sam's yeah. arrival. Here's here's how I and my fellow recruits have been protecting him. And he tries to make an argument saying, let him be a steward. Let him be a steward. Don't put him through, don't put him through what he's about to go through. Because what's the use of it? What's the use of a dead body up here if we know he's going to die? Right. And uh, yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. We get a little bit of this, but he's saying this in front of Chet, who we know is a steward, yes. uh, and ultimately proposes that Sam pretty much have Chet's job. Uh, <laughs> and Chet really reacts strongly to this, which feeds into what I was talking about earlier with the builders and with mm -hmm. uh, Halder, which is John really approaches this as let him be a steward. Who cares about the stewards? Right. And the steward in the room is like, fuck you, man. Like We do a lot of really important stuff. We do really hard stuff. And it's just kind of John's blinders that having thought about this clearly before he does it, we don't learn what he's doing until he does it, but he clearly was brainstorming and it did not occur to him to try and come up with a skill set, like something that Sam could do well until he's there and kind of shooting from the hip, which right. I think despite all of John's growth that we've seen remains somewhat of a blind spot for him. With that said, there's there before kind of like finishing out the chapter, there's a small aside where John kind of talks about the maester's collar. 
And I just thought yes. that was interesting. It goes into some lovely detail about it. John refers back to uh, his old maester telling him about yeah, like Maester what the, Lewin. Yeah, like and, and what those chains mean. And and I think you might probably have more color and detail than I do. But the way I understood it is that there is a almost the way a, a priest wears a collar. Like like there's mm-hmm. I forget what they're called. Uh, but it sounds like maesters were something. I was going to say similar. habit, but that's nuns. Yeah, this, yeah. There's something specific for that. I, yeah. I don't know. Not, not a Christian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hashtag Jewish. Uh, happy Passover, Michael. Happy Passover, Dan. Uh, but with that said, uh, it sounds like they do have some type of collar that they wear. It sounds like it's made of some type of chain or chain mail or something like that, or even if it's a necklace that they kind of yeah, wear. Yeah, so I think it's neck. literally just just links of a chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a while to envision this correctly, really until I noticed it in the TV show because they recreated it. But I had been thinking of it kind of as like a bunch of chains, uh, but it's literally just each one is a link. Right. And you earn a link at the Citadel, which is where Maesters trains, like the university, and you earn them for your study in a specific subject. Right. And the different metals relate to different subjects. So they use, I believe it was the ones that we have referenced were gold for uh, money and accounting, uh, silver for something else. I don't have it in front of me, but tin, whatever it is, but mm-hmm. different metals mm-hmm. for different things. Uh, so you can build a kind of longer chain based on having learned a bunch of different things. Yeah. And I just thought that was a lovely little world building moment. I kind of liked that. <laughs> it's like a neat yeah. little detail. I hadn't thought about that or anything. It's, it was neat. Yeah, and uh, John specifically brings it up as a nice little metaphor, which is how Maester Lewin had taught it to him, that it doesn't just symbolize the things you learned to become a maester, but it also symbolizes the strength of the realm. And the strength mm-hmm. of the realm is built by a variety of different but things. So you need the people and yeah, exactly. you need the steel of the warrior, but you also need the gold of the accountant and uh, of the head steward and right. the uh blacksmiths and the farmers and whatever else it may be and so you need all of these different links to forge a chain which john brings up as an example for the night's watch to follow sure sam can't fight well enough to get out of basic training but surely we can find something that he can be useful for and wouldn't that make the night's watch better than him being dead with that said the chapter kind of comes to a close maester amon says you're a pretty smart guy uh, I'm going to think about this. And John yeah. says, so we're going to do it. And he says, I'm going to think about it. And that's kind of like where, <laughs> where the chapter ends. But, but I will say, and we said it at the, you know, I was kind of talking about it at the beginning and, but, but I think we've been talking about it this whole time. John is growing up in a way that we're not necessarily seeing in all the characters we get to hang out with. It's not a criticism on them as much as it's a cool admiration towards him. He's really coming to terms with his station in life right now uh, right. and what that means. And he's making a real splash in it in a, in the best of ways he's bringing himself to it. it's, it's he's been a great character to follow and i'm having a lot of fun with him yeah so with the, the chapter wrapping up uh what do you think maester amon's decision on sam is going to be i think i think the i'm going to answer this at a larger level i i, I think okay. he'll yeah he'll do it i think sam will okay. become whatever. i mean he brings up a lot of uh procedural difficulties i'm not in charge of that that's sir yeah. alistair's decision uh just gonna ignore that well i think that the the thing more than what's going to specifically happen to sam is that i think that john is being slowly and i say this from a literary point of view not like within you know somebody a character doing this to john but i think john is being primed for a a big adventure something's gonna happen up on that wall something's gonna happen with john john's gonna have to do so 
And I think John's going to have a conflict to deal with. That's going to be really interesting to kind of follow and see what happens. I don't know if it's going to happen in in a story. I know. I don't know if it's going to happen in this book even. Uh, But, but I get the sense that John, what we're doing is we're watching John and I could be wrong, but I think we're watching John and learning about him so that when he's in whatever this major thing is that we really understand his perspective. I don't think that his, his conflict is going to be what happens to Sam. You know, if they say, because here's what I think from a literary perspective, right? If Sam is not given this and Sam has to stay, uh, you know, Sam has to stay in, you know, and be brutalized, basically. I think John's going to take that on the chin in the worst of ways. And like, that'll Uh be John's conflict. And I don't, I don't, I think he's too big for that to be the conflict that he's facing right now. So I assume Sam will be fine. I assume they'll continue to grow together. and, and, And I'm excited to see where John goes. Yeah, and, and I mean, in support of that idea, uh, for as little as this is worth, you know, in the fantasy context, you hear the name Sam, and you think of one specific person, uh, well, Hobbit, uh, was, <laughs> you know, that was the sidekick on Frodo's adventure. So if, right. if John is our Frodo at the wall about to go on this big adventure to deal with whatever conflict is at the wall, it seems more likely, uh, based on, on that background, that Sam is kind of going to be his support character sure. to come along with him. Um, although I personally, if we ever get into the Lord of the Rings, would argue that Sam is the real hero of that story. But that's beside the point. Lord of the Rings. Is that a fantasy book? or I'm uh, It's actually, it's nonfiction. nonfiction. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, a it's, uh, it's about the history of mining in South America. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, my, one of my favorite topics. They I used, can't believe I haven't used it to make rings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> rings. <laughs> uh okay moving along we get <laughs> from john into Tyrion. Um, Tyrion six lord of dance uh Tyrion, Tyrion <laughs> six um so we uh we actually we, we joined Tyrion after his his uh uh what's trial. it called trial that's what it's called dan it's called a trial we john no it'd be tri- worse if i forgot that word than you speaking that's as a fair. lawyer <laughs> We join Tyrion uh, after his trial up in the Vale, up in the Eyrie, and uh, and we immediately get an answer to one of the questions that we had talked about at the end of that trial, which is, well, what, are they just going to dump him out the front door? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes, uh, yes, they do. They kind of like <laughs> hand him some food, and they give him a horse, and they say, get the fuck out. Uh, yeah, and, and, and take your asshole sellsword who just killed our captain of the guard with you. Yeah, take take your, your douchebag friend with you. And, and that's really where we find ourselves. It's like, now yeah. that's where they are. Um, they're, I, they're specifically they're on the high road, which last we saw was very dangerous and killed a bunch of people and has exactly. the hill tribes and is just a bad place in general. I will I will add just you know as we start this to go through this chapter, just high level. I similar to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode, right? All three of these chapters are a lot of sort of like taking a moment. We get to spend some time with these characters. I'm not seeing a huge amount of story motion left right or center here there's a little bit towards the very very end of this chapter which we'll right. get into uh but this this was a really Tyrion has been such a fun character and there's been a few things that he's alluded to you know sort of through his his tone and through some of his comments you've touched on them a little bit uh I, I'll, I'll uh talk about one right there was a chapter earlier where he talks about his dreams of like killing his father yeah uh you know, and, and that's sort of come up. And I know you and I have talked about like where do his, you know, uh, uh, allegiances lie and that sort of thing. And and I thought this was a really interesting chapter as he really kind of opens up in a sensitive way to this mm-hmm. random dude, his his sellsword who happens to be their brawn. 
Yeah. And, and we'll I get into the it. specifics of that story, but I agree. That's exactly where I headed. You have talked a lot uh, at varying degrees about seeing the Lannisters as, as a monolith. And mm-hmm. I think from early on, we've gotten hints that maybe that's not quite the case. Not that they're necessarily working against each other, but that they're are politics within the family in the same way there as there are politics outside the family. There's the macro level game mm-hmm. playing between the Lannisters and the Starks and the Baratheons and whoever else. But there's also these micro things where it is clear that there are real relationships based on events that have proceeded between Tyrion and Jaime, Tyrion and Tywin, Tyrion and Cersei that are affecting the way they relate to each other now alongside the fact that, as we've discussed at length before, Tyrion exists. Tyrion is able to occupy a prominent place in society because of his family's stature and because right. of his family's money and can't necessarily do anything against them or maybe doesn't want to because he is a dwarf, because he would have no place in the society if not for the fact that he's a Lannister, uh, which makes for a very interesting set of conflicts in motivation for him. I'll say I was actually reminded a little bit, and again, I know we'll get into the specifics in a moment of this chapter, but I was reminded of the Clegane brothers uh, uh-huh. and their relationship, that they are they are seen as a unit. They're these two brothers of this family. Yet when we heard Sander Clegane talk about his brother, the mountain, you know, and the awfulness that was the scars that happened to his face and the sort of right. horrendous relationship that they have, it was just interesting to be exactly what you're saying. There's how they're presented to the world and then what that dynamic is internally as well. And, and I think that's exactly what we get to see here. Absolutely. With that said, uh, there, it's it's like we were saying, I, I'm going to go kind of quick here, but but I'll, I'll point at a few things. Let me know if there's things that you want me to go back to. But for the most part, it's Braun and Tyrion. Tyrion and his sellsword, Braun, kind of booted out of the out of the bill right. and braun is quick to say it's it's dangerous out here we need to move real fast and real quiet and we need to yeah. hide during the day and move at night and we got to get out of here and Tyrion seems a lot more casual about it he's like well don't worry i'm hungry let's get food let's make a fire <laughs> yeah so so Tyrion kind of reveals his plan slowly over the course of this chapter mm-hmm. Did you have thoughts on where he was heading? I mean, he seems to kind of have an MO that we're seeing now. He has one tool, uh, which is his money, and he seems to use it quite freely to get what it is he's looking for. How how much of this was apparent or how much of it, uh, to what extent were you siding with Braun in these early conversations about how they should approach things? Well, that's funny because when you said he has one tool, it wasn't money where my mind went. It was his mouth. Was, yeah. Uh, and, and so- Fine, so two tools. Two tools. Um, <laughs> well, I will say this. I find I I didn't know where it was going. And in fact, it wasn't until the very end where I realized what was happening here. And I thought it was a well sort of formatted way of kind of revealing what this plan was. But I will say that when Tyrion feels and exudes confidence, I don't worry. Okay. Uh, That makes sense. So we've seen him in some situations where he's clearly not confident. He doesn't know why. Catelyn took him. He didn't know what was about to happen up in the Vale. You know, I mean, I think about, you know, when he got uh, pounced on by Ghost. That yeah. was very much yeah. so not him uh, in control of the situation. You know, as soon as things, his his job, his goal is always to diffuse conflicts from escalating to mm-hmm. the physical. Because as soon as they turn physical, Catelyn grabs him with the help of swords. John's right. wolf jumps on him, whatever it is, he has instantly lost. Uh, and so he seems to have that confidence when he feels confident he can, uh, he feels sure he can keep it from heading that direction. Uh, and so, yeah, exactly. And with that said, he seems really confident throughout this entire chapter. 
really confident in what he's about to do. Now, does that mean it's going to end well or not? I don't know, but it does seem like he has a plan. And when he has a plan, it means he's going to talk. And when he talks, he usually offers money. So it's like, okay, I figured it was yeah. going to go somewhere here. <laughs> that makes um, sense. I will say that there is a fun conversation, again, just kind of like following as 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 Tyrion is letting Braun know sort of piece by piece, like, hey, I don't want to rush this. I understand the threats, but let's trust me. We're going to settle here a little bit and, and be calm. Right. Uh, he does go in a little bit, you know, Braun sort of says, you seemed, you seemed pretty confident in like knowing that I would fight on your behalf. And, uh, and Tyrion kind of goes through his own thinking about it and basically yeah. says, listen, I know, I know what you're doing this for. And I know, you know, that Catelyn wasn't, you know, that she, she you're not going to get rich working yeah. for Catelyn Stark as like a gross, lowly sellsword. You're a lowborn scum, whether you like it or not. And that's what yeah. Catelyn's going to look at you as. And she'll have given you a piece of gold, maybe for your troubles, and then like never looked you in the eye again because she was never going to be jewelry. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I liked this quote, and I figured you'd pull it out, so I will, since you haven't yet. Lord Eddard is a proud, honorable, and honest man, and his lady wife is worse. I just like that framing of you know these good, uh, objectively positive adjectives that he's using being framed as horrible. Tyrion's like, screw that. I don't want to be proud, honorable, or honest. How about I pay you instead? Kind of makes me think of the relationship every worker has with their boss. Like, I don't want to be a family. I don't want you to be. Right. nice to me and wonderful i want you to give me a raise uh, and that's kind of where bronze at here and Tyrion correctly predicted that yeah uh yeah i had that line underlined as well and it's uh, and <laughs> I I think we, <laughs> we talk about it all the time you know what like his honor is delightful yet at the same time seems to cost him more than it's getting him and it's like all right like come on man anyway with that said the situation, and I, I don't think we actually said it, but as Tyrion has made it clear to Bronn that he doesn't want to rush through the night and hide during the day, that he seems to have a plan. They're setting up camp is yep. what they're doing. And the, idea the argument they're, gonna... they're having is over building a fire. Uh, right. Bronn feels that that will attract the clansmen, uh, which it will, and Tyrion pretty much doesn't care. I do want to bring up one point towards the end of this conversation. Um just that that there's a couple of good jokes in here where bronze mm. like you know what if i just kill you um but at one point he asks you know bronze says okay you're gonna pay me to keep you alive in all this situation what happens if you die and Tyrion says uh well if i die you don't get paid anymore you're being paid to keep me safe like you're not going to go to my dad and cash a check right <laughs> <laughs> and he says uh in that case, I'll have one mourner whose grief is sincere. And I wanted to single it out because I actually just finished a book. This is a very brief aside, but the, the book is called uh, Debt or the History of Debt. It's by David Graeber, who you know I've read before. And we, we've sure. talked about, but at one point very early on, uh, he repeats effectively this same joke being made in a book written in the 1540s. So hmm. this has been around for forever, where it's this book written by a Frenchman named Francois Rabelais. And uh, the character Pantagruel uh, is talking to, he's a giant talking to the character Panurge. And Panurge is saying, yeah, I'm always in debt. I try to, I strive to always be in debt. Why would I ever not want to be in debt? And the giant's like, the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you ever say that? He says, always owe somebody something, then he will for be forever praying to God to grant you a good, long, and blessed life. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, so so this Amazing. joke is so good, it's been in rotation for centuries. I love it. I'll add, too, that there is a small moment where they're talking, and I can't, I'm trying to find, like, the exact, oh, yeah, it actually happens just, at like, like, half a page after exactly that, that comment there. But not only is Tyrion expressing this real 
fundamental understanding of economics, right? Like uh, like yeah. economic relationships. But he also, it becomes clear, he actually paid his his turnkey at the jail. Yeah, he gave exactly him all his gold. he said that he would. And he's, he basically says, you know, it's like, what, why would I not do, like, like it, his integrity continues to come to light. He may be an ass. He may be, you know, like a jerk about things this way or that way or whatever it happens to be. But at the end of the day, like he's paying his debts. He has a clear sense of what's going on around him. He knows how to use the two tools that are available to him. Three, right. if I understand the size of his, but that doesn't oh. matter. Uh, <laughs> but all I, all I mean is it's, it's, Tyrion has... And maybe I'm going to regret saying this, but Tyrion seems to not have much of an agenda. He's seen like like that has to, that's being affected by others around him. He's not out to punish the Starks. He's not out to, you know, make sure Jon Snow is taken care of. He's not, he's not any of this. He's really just kind of like navigating his way through the world forward in, in the way that he understands to. And I, and I kind of like him for that. Yeah, I think part of that relates to what we're about to get into, which is his family dynamic. He mm. does not have a concrete place at court. He does not have a concrete place yes. in the family structure. And so he's kind of just doing what he wants. Um, I, I think about stories of, you know, second sons who went off adventuring throughout history and all of that sort of stuff. That's kind of the p- spot that he's in. He has the family money. He has the family name. It doesn't buy him respect from the family. So why not go out to places where he can trade on it and kind of do what he wants and have fun? I think another aspect that we keep seeing showing up throughout these chapters and throughout this book is the way people relate to the difficulties of Westerosi society and the ways in which it is a brutal and and difficult world to live in. And this extends to Daenerys too. So it's not strictly Westerosi society, but we have characters interacting with it really in one of three different ways. One is I'm rich and grew up really well and I love the stories. Everything is fancy and nice and it's kind of emblematic of children for the most part, but Mm -hmm. we do see some of the older generation that kind of have this similar attitude uh, towards the world around them. You get it a little bit from Robert, you get a little bit from Ned in that sort of rose-colored glasses, here's the way the world should work, and I'm just going to pretend that it does because I have not experienced that flip side of things concretely. Uh, But then beyond that, you have people who have learned about the way the world works and have really curdled into this bastion of self-interest, this really, you know, violent, have adopted the system and pursued their own ends. And you really see that a lot from Sander and Gregor Clegane, for example, or maybe in a different style from Littlefinger, some of the other king's counselors, although we don't totally know where their motivations fall from. And then the third one, which Tyrion seems to emblemize and that Jon seems to be growing towards, Arya seems to be growing towards, is being able to marry that view of what the world should be uh, to some degree, but more importantly, being able to understand the difficulties and being able not to turn inward and focus solely on yourself, but to turn outward and to try and operate with other people in an honest sense, uh, in a way that that works with them. You know, you don't have Tyrion rejecting Braun as this lowborn scum. He sees him as a person, as a person who wants to do well for himself, who wants to feed himself and make some money and make a name for himself. And I can use that. I can work with that. I can support that. He doesn't have to live up to some beautiful ideal. I can take him as who he is and we can relate on that level, which is, I think, what makes their relationship so interesting. And I think also was a a point of common aspect to some degree between him and John earlier that made their relationship really interesting too. No, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I I do want to touch on, you know, as they're 
sitting here and they're talking. I mean, basically what happens with the rest of this chapter until the very end is, is just a conversation around a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that uh, there's a quick moment that Tyrion, you know, Bronn sort of says like, so where, where are you, where are you going to head to? Yep. And, and Bronn says, I gotta, I gotta go talk to somebody about a knife. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, which I was, I was happy, happy to hear. So, so how do you, how do you take that? Uh, Cause I kind of see this as, our formal confirmation that this was not Tyrion's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten him thinking about it in his head before. That seemed pretty clearly. But here he says outright in a situation where he has no reason to lie. Uh, and we're in his head for this conversation pretty clearly expresses this wasn't me. And I'm going to go figure out who framed me and we're going to have a chat. Um, did you do you have any quibbles with that? <laughs> do you think maybe this was still Tyrion in some fashion? Maybe the dagger was his or something? No, 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 no. Okay. I, 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 I felt, and I think I've said this on the podcast too, but like, like I felt pretty confident that, that it, it wouldn't make sense for Tyrion to have gone through this. I think at least I've been saying this, but you have since uh, the chapter where Tyrion recently. and Cat were on the road. Right. Before that, you were like, okay, yeah, it's Tyrion's. We heard that. From I said, yeah, he could. So yeah. Oh, hopefully, yeah, you've learned to be less trusting. Uh, yeah, but that's, that's a big I, I think we've, I think we've laid Tyrion's. Uh, suspect status to bed yeah i will say though that it does beg the question and this is a question i've had a couple times uh, across different characters but definitely with baelish is doesn't he know this is going to come back to him like right. like even if let's assume that the assassin did kill did kill bran mm-hmm. you know like and then they say oh it's Tyrion's knife and then they well, go to Tyrion and yeah hang on a second does this make you think it was Baelish's? I have no idea, but okay. I think we do know that Baelish lied about it, though, right? Right. I'm just saying it, it could have been a third party, and Baelish saw an opportunity to take a shot at Tyrion. Um, yeah, but I which just, still raises the same question. Exactly, don't get me wrong. Exactly. So I just thought that was interesting to to point out, and then I'll say that you know, again through their conversation, uh, Tyrion goes to share a sort of savage story about his yeah. family. Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, do you want to do you want to walk us through this? Yeah, I. <laughs> Not really. It's pretty sad. I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of just a really sad story. I I think it starts by by Tyrion kind of admitting that he was married once, that he had like fallen in love once and been married, yeah. which I think was a real shock. Definitely a shock to me. I uh, and then I think definitely a shock to Braun and like uh and and you know based on his on, on Tyrion's sort of like like attitude towards things. But we find we find this story that that Tyrion was when he was a young man, I think he was 13 or 14 or something like that. Yeah. Uh was out, I think, riding with Jamie, and they found a woman who had been beaten or was being chased, and and yeah, she was being chased by brigands. Brigands. And uh and what's it called? And Jamie kind of goes to to challenge those brigands, and that's offensive that they would, you know, try to hurt somebody, a young woman uh, on 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 Lannister land, right? And uh, and Tyrion kind of like takes care of this young girl, and they they fall in love, and yeah. they they actually rush to go get married, and they get married, and he he goes on, he says, uh, "I dared not bring my bride home to Casterly Rock." <laughs> he's like, yeah, he he's knew like, better. He knew better, and so they kind of hold up. And then his dad found out, and it yeah. Turns so, out... so they found a drunken Septon and got married, right? And found a little cottage to live in for two weeks before the he says the drunken Septon sobered up and went and told his dad. 
And then the dad uh, leads to some some rather awful revelations. Yeah, some horrific stuff here. Turns out she is not a damsel in distress, but in fact, a prostitute. Someone Jamie had hired so that his younger brother, I think younger brother, but his mm-hmm. brother, at least his younger brother, could uh, could get laid. Nobody thought that it would go as far as Tyrion falling in love and getting married. And Tywin, the father, basically said, there's no way you're marrying a whore. Right. Um, and then It's uh, annulled, specifically. There's no way you married a whore. Like, we're wiping right. this off the books. Yeah. And then uh, to help Tyrion understand uh, what a whore is, uh, he brought Tyrion's then ex-wife into, I think, the the court and the court, the, the sort of main chamber in the castle or whatever it is. And it was uh, uh, it was it was soldiers' barracks. It yeah. wasn't in front. Was, of it was it in the barracks? Yeah. yeah, I don't think Tywin set up the situation so that this would become a well-known story. Uh, uh, I, I think I think this was they just brought her to the soldiers' uh, housing, the Lannister guards' housing. And then, uh, well, she cost a piece of silver for every soldier to, that went with her. And by the end, her silver was flowing through her hands, uh, yeah. falling on the floor. And for for and then uh, Tywin made uh, Tyrion have uh, have sex with her last for a gold piece because it's worth more with the Lannister. And, yeah. Uh, and that was it. That was the end of the marriage. Yeah, really horrifying stuff from Tywin here. Uh, gross. Horrifying response to this situation. I mean, the absolute trauma for that woman of this situation, regardless of whether she was a whore or not, uh, or, or of the situation, um, really just an atrocious way to treat a human being. And for Tyrion, too, to have to watch that and to have to steal himself and then to have to participate is just beyond disgusting. I mean, it's it's really hard to understate there. Um do you think this woman was playing along for the money uh, or was there anything real to the situation? What are your thoughts? I don't know. I had thought about it. I had thought about, you know, in, in sort of the worst ways I was like, man, was she kind of like giggling throughout this whole barracks situation? Like she was really just in on it, in on it. Right. Uh, but honestly, I don't know. Uh, and I, mean, I, don't, I doubt it on that front, even well, if she was a whore, yeah. but regardless. But I'll add too that I, I like I, I don't care, and I don't mean that in the sense of like in a heartless way about her and her feelings. But I think story wise, like this is about Tyrion and about his relationship with the Lannisters and his family, mm-hmm. and it gives a lot of context. They could have been deeply in love. She could have just found a free meal for two weeks. But right, you know, it, I will be. It'll become more interesting if she shows up again somewhere. Okay. You know, if yeah, ten chapters from now or two books from now, it's like oh my god. Tyrion actually has like babies from this one, you know what I mean? Or something. Yeah. But I, I don't see that. I don't predict that. I think that she's a nothing character that this, her only role was to be this character. It's about, it's about Tyrion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the other question I had coming off of this story, we know from the past, Tyrion has had plenty of thoughts about issues with Cersei, about issues with Tywin, but he and Jamie have a very close relationship. Uh, what do you think's going on there? I mean, is there just no, like, is Jamie's role here kind of an aside? Like, I guess you could view it as he was trying to do something nice and it got out of hand, but. That is kind of how I viewed it. I don't think that, I think even, and I don't remember if Tyrion said this exactly, but like, I don't think anybody expected Tyrion to take it as far as he did. Right. Uh, that's that's what I meant by it got yeah, out of hand. Uh, that, and I guess yeah. in the sense of Tywin's response too, but I was just curious there. That's, that's the kind of how I feel about it. If only because like, Proof is in the pudding and the pudding is in the now. 
Tyrion right. doesn't seem to hate Jamie. Tyrion seems to really like Jamie. They, right. You know, it's the only one that really cares about him. Then in that case, this must have been a nice effort on Jamie's part, like an effort. Or at of, least that's how Tyrion sees it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's I that, think that's the close of this conversation uh really drives it all home is before we get to the the last mm-hmm. event of this chapter, Braun is silent for a little while and says, you know, I, I would have killed the man that did that to me. To which Tyrion says, you may get that chance one day. Lannister always pays his debts. Hmm. Um, So that just ties into what we were talking about earlier with respect to Tyrion's relationship with Tywin and the fact that he's brought up fantasizing about killing him before. It seems pretty clear that this is is sitting with Tyrion. And then just to drive that home, we get a, a brief dream from Tyrion. Who could say what this means? But he is now in Mord's position at the as the jailer at the sky cells his father is the prisoner and he's beating his father back towards the drop yeah uh, so i don't know seems seems to really emphasize that point i'm, I'm interested well I'll, I'll save it to the end of the chapter we'll, we'll come back to it uh okay. like sort of high level stuff but i will say yeah, why don't you wrap us up here yeah so basically the 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 scene of conversation across the fire across dinner with braun kind of comes to an end braun's going to take first watch Tyrion's going to sleep, and sure enough, Bronn says, "Tyrion, get up!" Uh, and they're they're being surrounded. They're being surrounded by I, I don't I forget what they're called. The people of the clansmen, the hill clans, clans. Yeah, the, hill, the hill clans or whatever. Yeah. And basically, these these people are just what we kind of experienced of them last time when they were going through it, you know, with Catelyn and going towards the Eyrie. Uh, but they're they're local. They're locals, and yeah. They're out for. They're basically like we're we're poor and we're here for your stuff and we're going to kill you. We don't like. Yeah, them. we get we get some context surrounding them before we get to the concrete conversation here. Uh, the first part is they really do not like the Aarons or the general Westerosi that live in the Vale. It seems mm-hmm. clear that they have a hostile kind of uh, war posture against those peoples at all times, which makes sense. You you have to imagine that the reason why they're poor and up in the hills is because of the ongoing violence between them and the landed nobility. Uh, certainly their finances come up again here. They're still, as they were the last time we saw them, wearing ragged clothes uh using weapons that are are pretty messed up uh we also learned that there are double digits of them Tyrion isn't sure exactly how many but plenty we do get two primary names here gunther son of gurn let me try that again gunther son of gurn of the stone crows and shaga son of dolph uh, are the two that we get introduced to um, before a, a rapid fire of names gets thrown our way there's a lot of sort of sniping that happens between these clansmen and Tyrion. There's a little bit of back and forth and conversation, Tyrion doing what Tyrion does. And basically Tyrion saying, you know, don't, you shouldn't kill me because I am worth more and I have more to offer you alive than dead. Dead, you can take my stuff, but alive, I got a lot more stuff for you. Yeah. Uh, and basically, you know, the the uproar is, you know, I th- it, it's, it's Shaga. Shaga, son of Dolph, basically says, you're an idiot. We're going to kill you now. Yeah. And uh, I actually like this from him because Tyrion says, don't kill me. I can offer you so much. And they say, what are you talking about? Why don't we just kill you and take it? It's already ours is effectively right. what they say, which, you know, is a reasonable response. So Tyrion has to kind of come up with something else to offer there. And this is how the chapter ends, which I think is exactly what he had planned on doing from the beginning. And that confidence I was talking about, because Gunther says, wait a second, I want to hear what this man says. You know, because like our 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 families are going hungry. You know, we can take his stuff, but it's not going to feed us for long. And 
And basically, uh, Tyrion says, I'm going to give you the veil of Aaron. I'm going to I'm going to help you to kick these people out of here. And I'm going to support uh, Lannister you. always pays his debts, pays his debts. And I adore that because I think the Aarons are assholes and shit. <laughs> shit. Yeah. I hate all those people. Yeah. I mean, we saw some rough stuff that I'm planning on coming back to in future episodes from the court of Aaron surrounding the knighthood there and the nobility and kind of, you know, talking about those different categories of people we have. It seems pretty clear to me what side of that spectrum they fit into of the kind of pampered people who are sure they've got it right. And Tyrion's really reacting to that, which I think is fair. I did want to bring something back up from that chapter, though, that we closed out last week with because we kind of rushed through it. And I want to talk about it here. We have Tyrion responding against the Knights of the Vale, against the Aarons, uh, and really wanting to threaten them because of the way they treated him and what they did to him, which seems reasonable. He, he really got shafted. Earlier in the chapter, we got what seemed to be pretty clear confirmation he was not responsible for sending the cutthroat after Bran. Mm -hmm. But he was acquitted via trial by combat, not just of the dagger after Bran, but also of the murder of John Aaron. And we heard the description in that chapter of trial by combat being adopted as a mechanism for justice because it is done before the gods, before the seven, and they make it so that the one who is correct in this trial wins. Do you put any stock into that? I mean, we haven't seen anything supernatural tied to the religion, certainly. There haven't been any priests doing miracles or things like that. But is there some sort of cosmic force helping Braun win in that context that tells us Tyrion didn't do this? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like I like the question. I haven't seen anything at all like that throughout, like any hints of that in the book. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? So that's the first yeah. big thing. And I also think too that uh like it's funny. I thought you were going to take the question a little bit different, like like in a different direction. Like, like I don't even think that the fact that this was a trial about this specific issue before the eyes of the seven gods or whatever, I don't even think that's going to prevent uh like the the issue of double jeopardy and and possibly Tyrion having to face this again as a trial <laughs> like oh, like yeah. if if John Stark want you know if uh, Ned Stark wants to you know wants to do it or whatever you know what I mean like it's yeah. it's I think that this is a this whole situation of the trial was like a a, a side a, you know a side quest <laughs> before coming back to like the larger issues at hand okay. That's that's fair. I just wanted to bring it up because I yeah. forgot to last time and because it kind of fits in well with some of the stuff that we've been talking about throughout this chapter. So uh, so where do you think it's headed? You, yeah, so, I, so let's start with the easy one. Do you think the Stone Crows accept Tyrion's offer here or is he just dead now? I assume they do again because <laughs> I assume Tyrion is a great character and I just can't imagine him not being around. Uh, also, this would be a really dumb and useless chapter. <laughs> Like, like if, uh, if it's like, then we just never hear from Tyrion again. Like he's like, also gone. to have him die off page. Like yeah, right exactly. after this conversation, they're like, nope, we no, don't want the no, thank you. Dead. That's fine. Um, I will That'd say be th fun. there's a couple interesting implications from a higher level here that, that I, that I did want to bring up. So one, a Lannister always pays their debt. So I hear he's making deals and I assume he's going to stand behind it. Does that mean today or in 10 years? I don't know. And I'm not saying that right. in a shitty way, right? But like, like, who knows? Maybe it takes a long time for these things to build. And in fact, that's the next series of books is this whole war between these clansmen and the Aarons and the Vale. 
Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's going to happen next time we see Tyrion. He's already building the armies or whatever. Um, but I like this, and I like that it has the potential for being a focal point of the story, even if not from Tyrion's point of view, but maybe it's Lysa, Aaron, and Catelyn again having to deal with, you know, paying for the... Paying the for freshly the armed. Yeah. Yeah. With that said, this whole story about Tywin Lannister and the relationship between the two makes things a little more murky for me. Okay. Uh, you know, the... I don't understand why Tyrion stays as true to his family as he is. Okay. As close to his family as he is. He is still decidedly a Lannister. He's still at the king's court. He's still, you know, he, and I and I, I can understand it from like a human perspective, right? Like, oh, there, there's wealth and power there, right? Like, shit, dad. But like, people leave their families. You know, there's options and opportunities. Yes and no. Yeah. Like I would I would just say, you know, there are plenty of contexts where you're absolutely right. People have this sort of childhood trauma, this horrible relationship with their parents or their family or whatever it may be. But on the flip side, there are plenty plenty of pre- people, there are plenty of people who come out of that type of context uh feeling put upon, feeling like they've done something, feeling mm. like there is, you know, something owed or or something craved from the family that they haven't been getting. And I think the material context is certainly a part of it. We have had Tyrion being very honest about if I was born to a peasant family, I would have been dead by a week old. Uh, And having access to the Lannister name and the Lannister power seems to have played a huge role in him living fundamentally. But I think that there is also, it seems some sort of family dynamic there where he loves Jamie, despite Jamie's role in this story that we were just talking about. He has issues with Cersei, has issues with Tywin, but he does still seem to be advancing the family's causes that maybe there is an aspect of outsider status that makes him even more want to prove himself. I will say that the the second the second thing that sort of adds to the murk of this is again going back to that story about his father and the punishment for you know marrying a whore or whatever is that like i'm i'm not sure how far Tyrion's uh plans and motives not not motives but his plans and his offerings the debts that he's creating are really supported by his father Mm-hmm. Uh, the father doesn't seem to have lots of love for Tyrion. And that's not just from this one story, but from other things that we've heard as well. Right. You know, it, it seems like a really tense relationship, but Tyrion seems to have no problem living off of the Lannister coin. And, you know, he, he's not, he's not, he's not a Sam Tarly. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he's not he, being cast out. He's not being, you know, sort of uh, uh, pushed away from taking over responsibilities by any means, as far as I can tell. But that's interesting to me too. He's making some big pledges here. He's saying I'm going to support right. a war. And I'm just in, it's just interesting to me. Is he can he really do that? And I I assume he can, but it's just interesting. That's an interesting question and we'll certainly have to see if this comes up between him and Tywin how Tywin reacts. But let me let me throw one other branch on the fire for you. Uh with respect to this, which is geography. Mm-hmm. Tyrion is coming out of the mountains to the east, potentially with these clansmen who he has pledged to arm. Mm-hmm. The Lannisters, we know, are putting together an army in the West. In between those two places are the Riverlands where the Tullys are from. Right. So there is a world where 
Tyrion is now at the head of an army that could be very useful to Tywin in the very near future. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I don't know how much of those facts Tyrion knows right now, but assuming he has gotten some whiff of what's going on in the broader world on his way out of the Vale, that's something to think about as well. But we've got one more chapter to get to. And I will tack on to the end there. Fucking Catelyn, man. What an (laughs) idiot. What a strategically stupid move all of this was. You dumb, dumb, dumb. We've we've had this fight enough. We don't need to rehash it now. Oh, don't worry. In about two pages, I actually have a note that says F and Catelyn. Like, uh, so (laughs) So we're not done. (laughs) Net net 11. Let's go. Net 11. Uh, Net 11. Man, this guy's life is sucking more and more. Uh, (laughs) we, We find Ned. So this whole chapter takes place in the court. Yes. Ned is now sitting in on the king's throne in the stead of the king while, while we know the king has gone off hunting. In addition to this, we know that some, we're actually informed that some of the members of the king's council have joined him for this hunt, including – nope, I didn't write it down. Oh, Renly and Sir Barristan. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's there. everybody except for uh, Varys and Littlefinger um, and Pysel. The three of them are with Ned here in the court. Everybody else has gone. Joffrey went, uh, Barristan the king's garden general so they're all they're all with uh yeah the king going on this hunt here and we get a description of the throne here to start which i think is interesting <laughs> and worth mentioning i love uh, this <laughs> yeah so the throne was made from melted down swords of the various armies that bowed to Aegon the conqueror he used dragon fire to fuse them together uh he specifically apparently wanted it to be uncomfortable so we hear you know it's it's all hard metal that is incredibly uncomfortable because of his broken leg leg throughout this chapter mm-hmm. but we also hear that it still has a bunch of the sword's sharp edges on it and that kings have uh plenty of times cut themselves and maybe even died throughout the stories uh and i actually kind of like this because it's such a blunt metaphor in a couple of different ways on the one hand we have you know the weight of authority uh king shouldn't sit easy the throne might kill you mm-hmm. if you're not worthy and all of those things but also on the other side we have a, a sword built out of the melted down swords of the seven kingdoms fused together using dragons uh which is literally the story hmm. uh, so like it's just you know it's it's kind of nicely obvious in a concrete way I'll also add that through this description, Ned's frustration with his situation continues to pour out. Not only is this an uncomfortable chair, not only is his leg broken and it's just really uncomfortable in general to be there, but he's also like, like he has understood how awful his position is. He is now here to be the king's mouth and ears in right. place of the king who is not there. This, this discomfort is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Um, made worse by the by the 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 not the trial but the sort of issue placed in front of him i uh, which which i want to jump into i will say i do want to skip out of order for just a second he okay. at, at one point a little bit later he notices that uh who is it sansa and uh what's her face jane pool and the other one the nan oh uh, septimordane septimordane are sort of in the audience and he's like god oh, that what an ass for bringing my daughter here today. And he's like, well, how could she have known that this is what it's going to be? It's usually pretty boring. Yeah. But, but I will say that I think that that just speaks to the, the, there's no longer a sense of, of, and I don't know if this is really, we've ever talked about this or if this was made really clear, but there's not a sense of temp temporality uh, to his situation. In fact, it's becoming much more clear that he's going to be here forever. Uh (laughs) And it's like, right. There will be times that your daughter is going to hear things that you don't want her to either. This is the life now. And you need to be accepting of this. Yeah, that's a good point. We find out, though, slowly, 
I... Well, actually, let me just cut you off. Sure. Yeah, I just have a very brief aside here that I want to point out. Uh, Robert went on the hunt specifically because he heard there was a white heart in the Kingswood. Mm-hmm. And I just want to point this out because it's a little bit of symbolism that I think is interesting and has some, some roots in history. Uh, because the white heart is specifically a symbol of royalty. It comes from Richard II. Uh, this was his sigil. Um, and in universe, obviously, there was no Richard II, but a heart is a stag. So it makes perfect sense mm. that the white stag would be something Robert Baratheon would kind of poke his ears up at as the right. sigil of his house and want to go get. Uh, and, uh, and and so that's just a nice little moment there of tying it to our world that we found a way to to have the same symbolism in both places that Robert is plainly reacting to. Oh, interesting. I like that. Yeah, I wasn't sure what a white heart was, and I did not look it up. Uh, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I got to give gave me my moment. With this said, we find out sort of like piece by piece what this who the petitioners are. Yeah, who the petitioners are. Why they're here. And Dan, who are the petitioners and why are they <laughs> okay. here? Okay. So we've got some tattered and bloody villagers are mm-hmm. the centerpiece here, along with three knights who we know are from the Riverlands. The first one is Sir Raymond Derry, who we've actually met. Uh, the Derrys mm-hmm. were the castle that they stayed at where the whole issue with the direwolves came up on their way south. Uh, and then we also hear reference Sir Carl Vance and Sir Mark Piper. Mark Piper specifically is referenced as being kind of younger and a firebrand and is one of Sir Edmure, Catelyn's brother's good friends. So that's our background on those three. Uh, and these villagers are here along with these knights basically to say that they've been attacked. And 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 it's a little, it, it's fun the way that it's written here. So I'm going to talk about it in terms of like relating relating what happened not necessarily in the style that george rr martin did it we Mm -hmm. find that the issue is these knights and these villagers are saying this was a coordinated attack on us by the lannisters this is what we believe it to be the king's council is starting to say well how do you know it's lannisters these are big words that you guys are saying were there were there banners lannister banners there were there adornments and no No. and the answer is no (laughs) no so how can you tell and throughout this there's a savage brutality that was done upon them by these raiders, if you will, right? Whether they're brigands or they're they're Lannisters or whatever it was, but it was savage. They they lit people, they lit uh, you know, sanctuary houses on fire, houses that people were like hiding in yeah. for sanctuary, lit on fire and burned them. There was real just brutality that happened across all of this. Yeah, and, so let's let's put yeah, some names onto everything here. Mm-hmm. The villagers that are here are from a holdfast of a town called Sherer, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but regardless, uh, they're all that's left. The entire town has been burned to the ground. These are the only survivors. We also have Wendish Town and the Mummers Ford as some other nearby places. Wendish Town in particular, the holdfast there, so the castle that the local, you know, lowly lord used was built out of wood mm-hmm. so everybody went in there as a place of sanctuary as you do which is also what they did in Sherer. in Sherer, they survived in wendish town where it was wood it was lit on fire everyone inside burned to death so that town has been effectively wiped off the map here and that's that's how aggressive uh this group was and so the king's council continues to say well wait a second why are you casting lannister's names around and a description comes up Uh, It says, it was the size of him, my lord. Those those that say the giants are all dead never saw this one, I swear. Big as an ox he was, and a voice like stone breaking. 
to which every reader in the world who's ever read this, as well as literally the next line from the person <laughs> the character says, oh, the mountain, the yeah. only character ever described this way. So that, that gets ahead of my first question to you is, is this correct? Have they identified this? I mean, the fact that a guy is big does not, that's not going to hold up at trial. Put it that way. That's that's fair. I But I, I will say that there's there's big as an adjective and then there's big as a noun and this feels much more of the noun when we were introduced to the mountain Mm -hmm. as a character his size is what defines him is one of the two things i would say that define him uh that makes him sort of difficult to mistake the second thing that described him when we met him at the tournament was his savagery and okay here here it is as well so it doesn't carry weight in court as a trial i don't know but does it really point in a direction i think it does (laughs) yeah yeah and we we get some objections oh how do we really know off the bat like you already uh referenced but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day everybody kind of comes to the same conclusion as you um you know so so i'm comfortable moving on from that i will say though that the one person who does put up a little bit of a word here is grandmaster pycelle okay who says and i bring this up not because he's bringing up the perspective of well you didn't see his face you can't tell you know it's not enough proof but he does it from a different perspective saying well why would this guy want to turn brilliant like what which which i think speaks to some naivete about the political situations that are happening right now or a deliberate sort of like he's on a specific side here. I don't okay. know, but that's kind of the the vibe that I got. That's the sensation that I got. From well, me. let's let's bring back up briefly where we've seen Pycelle before. Pycelle was the guy who treated John Aaron before he died. Uh, he was also the guy who gave Ned the big book that John Aaron was reading. Um, so we've got some some mixed motives here from him, but certainly there is some interest here uh for for why Picel is speaking up i mean like you said it would speak to naivete uh it would also speak as somewhat of a deflection he goes through here well why would he turn brigand but also if he did the correct way to litigate this is you go talk to tywin and tywin will sit in judgment kind of as a, a pretty direct obfuscation either he's being a, an idiot or it's a right. pretty direct obfuscation of tywin's role in this process well, it's funny because you took the words right out of my mouth. I think Pycelle has walked a very interesting line between idiot and, you know, like, uh, not usurper, but like real villain. Uh, we know that the King's Council is made up of many characters who are self-serving. Pycelle seems to border on, you know, uh, you, know basically, you know, like losing his mind a little bit, just being an old right. doof uh, and possibly being a real threat and and is it's just interesting to have noted this i don't and i don't think this is definitive one way or the other i think he's following yeah. the lines right like he's following what he should be saying i will also note i mean we've met two other maesters three really i guess if you count coleman but in lewin and, and maester amen this is an order of thinkers this is what they do mm-hmm. they are the professors the doctors of the world we don't know the politics that got him this role as grand maester but certainly his background seems to indicate he's not a complete idiot whether right. he's losing his mind as he gets older is a different question but fair um with that said there is one other uh king's councilman who brings up a comment that i thought was interesting as well which is baelish and i like this comment because it's a good comment uh where basically turns to the knights that are as there as part of this and says well where were you guys during all Mm -hmm. of this um to which they kind of said they were doing other like like they were on other positions, but like, you know, and when they heard about it, they got there, but they need more support or whatever it might be. But I just thought it was, a, I thought it was a good question and, and the right question to ask. 
Yeah, I, I think this is my next note here, uh, which I think is important to note because Ned has an interesting internal reaction to all of this. The three knights were specifically at places where the Tullys had positioned them. So two of them, Vance and Piper, were at the Golden Tooth, which we know is the pass between the Westerlands and the Riverlands. And this is where the army of the Riverlands is really positioned to prevent the Lannisters from invading. The third one was at River Run, effectively waiting for orders to the same extent. And Edmure, upon hearing of the events at these towns, sent them back and sent other people back to defend their lands. And Ned specifically thinks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is who Edmure is. He's the type of guy who's going to try and fight this battle on every front so as to protect every peasant in the area, which is really honorable and really nice, but also really dumb. Uh, and he specifically thinks this is this was probably Tywin's goal in sending this force in was to pull men of these armies away from the pressure points. Right. And I'll actually take it one step further that, uh, you know, like a paragraph or two after that sort of internal thought from Ned, Ned continues the thought by saying, man, thank God, thank God their leader sent them to me first and not to go just like take up arms against Lannisters, because considering that this raid was done with no banners and mm -hmm. by cover of night, Tywin could have easily turned around if his lands were attacked and said, we didn't even do first blood. We're now on the defense, not on offense. You can't prove we were on offense by any means. Uh, yeah, they're, I, they're here to get permission effectively exactly. for a retaliation. Uh, it's also notable that this decision is attributed to Hoster Tully, Catelyn's dad. Edmure mm -hmm. had specifically wanted to do the opposite. Let's just go get him. Uh, and we've heard a lot about Hoster potentially that he's sick and out of commission. So this is a good way to see him back in the fold and, and right. being kind of savvy in terms of how he approaches things, which is an interesting contrast to the last time his name came up. With that said, uh, Ned goes ahead and makes a decision. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, I'll actually like pause for a second and say, he's he's kind of stopped for a moment. Like, I think it's by Pycelle, who said, shouldn't we wait for the king? to yeah. come back and make a decision. And Ned says, no, my, I've been told to be here as the ears and voice of the king. It's my duty. To, I'm going to use it. I'm doing it. This is what I'm going to do. And he goes ahead and he basically says, basically, he literally says, yes, this was the mountain. We're going to go send men to strip the mountain of his titles. We're going to go and take his stuff right now. We're going to go basically <laughs> like, like arrest him. Is basically yeah. what he's saying. I, uh, Strip yeah. a, a tainted of titles and stripped of land. So, mm -hmm. so like the Clegane household, or at least Gregor as the head of the Clegane household currently, will lose their nobility in effect. So, I mean, this is this is as close to the death penalty as you come without executing him, which seems like it would probably be the next step. The there's and that's basically how the chapter ends. Although I'll kind of pause for a second. It's not totally how it ends. There's a there's sort of a a little bit of a uh, not an to do, but but there's a little bit of commentary or or just dialogue that starts to happen about who's going to go do this. And I'll say Loris Tyrell comes up as mm -hmm. saying, "I want to, I volunteer, I'll go do right. this." Uh, to which Ned says, "No, you won't." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so let's let's pause on Loris for a second because we know the Tyrells are an important house, and we know, or at least we've heard, you know, in that conversation between Illyrio and the mystery person. Um, that he's been in constant communication with his father, that he is kind of a representative of this house at court. We also right. know that he's like 16 years old or something yep. and loves attention and the jousting and all of that. So do you think that this is a sort of a, an announcement of intent against the Lannisters by the Tyrells? Or is this a kid saying, I want the glory of the expedition. I'm going to go do it uh, to hell with what my father might think about throwing our hat into this brewing war. 
You know, it's funny. I don't know. And I think that I was, when I read it, it was more of the latter, not mm-hmm. a statement, a political statement against the Lannisters as much as a kid saying, here I go. Yes. I, I do think that there's something that I'm realizing about this book, and, and you've been providing this throughout, but I think that this is a book that reads differently the second time around. That's for sure. I am meeting all these people for the first time. You know, and 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 there are some contexts that I really just don't understand. The Tyrell and the House Tyrell has come up plenty and been talked about, but I don't really know them by any means, nor do I really right. understand their intentions and where they're going. The fact is, the second time around, it might be really clear that this was a very clearly plotted and planned statement to be taken, you know, to the king and heard by the king. It happened that Ned was there, uh, you know, but... But, you know, I, but I don't know right now. It really does just seem like a kid, the same kid who brought a tricky horse to the, you know, to the, to the tournament. Uh, I mean, he also has personal animus with Gregor now. I mean, Gregor tried to kill him uh, at the end of that joust. So it very easily could be, Hey, that guy's a dick and I want to get some vengeance against him. I will say though that I can't help but like, like while I was reading it, I thought there was a lot of bravado in that. Like this man, not, not only did Gregor like get up to try to kill this kid, this kid was going to die. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like, like this wasn't like going to be a fair fight. So was it going to be like, you know, and, and it had to be Sander Clegane that stood up, you know, to be kind of like, like block and parry as a part of their way. But, but yeah, it seemed real hubris for this 16 year old to say, Oh, I'll do this. Maybe, maybe. I mean, we do know he's great at the joust. He's talked about as a fine knight. Uh, we didn't see his sword skills, but he was, you know, he's mm-hmm. taken by surprise. He didn't have his own sword ready for the yep. situation with Gregor. So we don't really know if this would be a for sure losing fight for him in that sense. But I hear what you're saying. But we don't know. And Ned basically says no to to this little Tyrell. And 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 uh, and that's kind of the end of it there. The Tyrell kind of like fumes a little bit and then mm-hmm. leaves. Well, he picks some other people, crucially. Yeah, well, and Ned does. Ned kind of like points around the room and says, you, you, and you, and I'll add men as well. And we're going to send a huge party here to go with you to go and carry out this order. And I do think it's worth mentioning. He also says somebody needs to ride and tell the king what happened. You know, mm-hmm. this is not happening in a vacuum. I am allowed to make this decision, but I'm going to go share this. Yeah, so I, I need to call this out uh, if you're not going to. The guys he sends, Lord Beric Dondarrion, our guy, our sigil, Michael, oh, the, the brothers I without banners themselves, and uh, Thoros of 470. Mir. This guy's been mentioned twice. There's two sentences <laughs> about this guy. No I idea what the hell we're talking about. Dare you. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's him, Thoros of Mir, who we know is the guy who uses a sword that's on fire. That's right. And then two names that we haven't really heard before, Sir Gladden and Lord Lothar. And then Ned says, each of you take 20 of your own men. So that's 80 plus 20 of mine, which will bring us to 100. Uh, you guys are going to take them out and go and arrest the mountain. Right. Um, with that said, Ned calls end of the day uh, to hearing people's pleas or, you know, court cases or whatever it happens to be. And there's a small conversation that happens between him and Varys. Varys kind of like mm-hmm. grabs him for a second. And uh, and it really is about this Tyrell house and, and this, this kid basically saying, you know, hey, like that kid. Well, there's actually two characters to get mentioned here. First is about this kid, Tyrell. Yep. And Varys saying, man, that seemed kind of quick for you to brush this kid off. Uh, this is a strong house. And, and I actually underline this, uh, uh, a man who has the Lannisters for his enemies would do well to make the Tyrells his friends. Yes. And I said, Oh, interesting that, uh, that, that this may have more connotation than Ned was ready for it to have. 
uh, mm-hmm. or to appreciate. And I, I thought it was interesting to see that. I will say, oh, and I, yeah, I don't know if you had anything to add. No, no, no. Keep going. The final thing is the other character brought up is uh, Sir Illin. Uh, yes. Illin, Illin. Uh, who is the uh what what is he's the headsman the, the king's head, justice yeah, the king's justice that's right uh and he we had met him obviously uh some chapters ago on the on the sort of road from winterfell coming back to uh to to king's landing um but Varys says you know interesting you didn't send the king's headsman to to do the work to do this work to go and potentially like kill this guy if need be right uh and Ned kind of says, you know, whatever, this guy, I didn't mean any insult. Uh, and, and it actually goes on. Uh, Ned did not trust the mute knight. Uh, but but he I'll, I'll, the, the quote goes on longer than I wanted to. But he was kind of a little bit of concern if this if this man might might have allegiances to the Lannisters. Right. Uh, well, specifically, his house is in the West. Right. They are Lannister bannermen. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it might not have been the best move to send a Lannister ba- bannerman to arrest another Lannister bannerman. And I really love the last sentence of this uh, of this chapter is from Varys. And, and it's responding to something that Ned had said a little bit earlier. Ned had said, oh, the Tyrell kid is just a kid. He'll grow out of his disappointment. And then they talk about Sir Illin. And, uh, and Varys says, man, like, I hope he grows out of his disappointments as well. He does so love his work. Uh <laughs> Which, which creepy. I did. Yeah, it is creepy. And I will say, you know, you talk about it in the intro to this show all the time. I did see the first three seasons. I can't <laughs> okay. help but, like, I wrote foreshadowing. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> uh, but that's all I'll say about it. But, uh, but I thought it was, it was a really yeah, we'll see. Cute, uh, cute comment, if you will. Yeah. So let, let's just wrap this up on on your thoughts on next steps in the King's Landing area. I mean, we've had these discussions about Ned maybe creating some enemies, but we've also had him take his first real concrete step against the Lannister regime, yeah. uh, sending these people out to arrest one of the Lannister's chief military officers, in effect. How is that all going to go? Are, are we going to open next time on the trial of Gregor Clegane? Uh, is, you know, is this force that Beric Dondarrion is leading going to get the crap kicked out of them. What's the results here? Well, I will say it, it, it's it's funny because I'm actually going to go back to something I was just saying, which is that I did watch the first couple seasons of Game of Thrones. And the fact is, is that we're getting to a point which was a huge story turning point in the TV series. And I can mm-hmm. only imagine this is exactly what's about to happen here. And I don't want to share it as a spoiler necessarily right now. Okay. Uh, but with that said, uh, similar to what we had talked about Similar to like like something that you and I had talked about at the beginning of this episode, I think that these three chapters in particular, and sort of where the book is right now, has been a nice way to reset the the table. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of new situations going on. The way that this is going is so. Let's leave the TV show out of it for a second, and what I remember, and I'll come back to that. Given what's going on here, I think that things are primed for the king and for Ned to kind of go at it a little bit for the Lannisters to come up politically through the side of Cersei and more of this to come up and possibly that sort of weird emotionality that we saw from King Robert Baratheon in the last chapter with him talking to Ned, right? Like, right. man, I can't stand this freaking wife of mine. Like, <laughs> like the Lannisters suck, like my whole situation. I think there might be a lot of room for that. I do get the sense from my experience with the TV show that we're getting a nice new chess match set up and somebody's about to put their foot through the board and take a lot of these situations and turn them upside down, like upside down on their head. All right. Uh, we can leave that as a, then. as a reader would be a very exciting and terrifying moment as it happens. I do. I am excited to see exactly what happens. 
All right, that's for sure. Well, you know, that is a perfect transition. Uh, this was a little bit of a longer one because we had three chapters to get through. I did that just to set us up in the right way to to put the cliffhangers at the right spots for you over awesome. the next right. couple of weeks, Michael. Uh, but so next week we're back to doing just two. It's Daenerys five and Ned thirteen. I'm sorry, it's not. Did Sansa? I get that wrong? Dun dun dun. Sansa is next on mine. Nope, I I skipped ahead. That was my problem. Ah, okay. uh, Sansa three and Ned twelve. The week after will be the two that I just said. Danny five and Ned thirteen. I had that I gotcha. written down. Okay. Oh, that's my bad. But All yes, right, uh, Sansa three and Ned twelve next time. Amazing. Right. Looking forward to it, Dan. Thanks as always. I'll talk to you then. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones, Sansa 3, and Ned 12. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast, and feel free to tell us your feedback or thoughts on Twitter at Bros with Banners. We appreciate you guys reading along with us. Thanks, as always, for listening.